welcome to the Squamates Podcast. It's a podcast about reptiles and amphibians where the language is strong and the jargon is stronger. I am one of your three co-hosts, Dr. Mark D. Schertz. I'm a herpetologist and an evolutionary biologist, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Ethan Kosak. Hello. I am a artist, cartoonist, and uh, salamander enthusiast. And Gabriel Lugetto. And I'm Gabriel Lugetto, and I'm a scientific illustrator, paleo artist, and I used to work in herpetology, but not anymore, although that might change. <laughs> More on that, actually not in this episode. So, folks, we've had, so it's been a really long time since we recorded the last episode, um, and we've had a bit of a change of ideas about how we're going to be structuring the show. So, basically... We're going to break it down. Um, Previously, our episodes have been very, very long, sometimes over three hours long. And, you know, although we have some hardcore fans who really love listening to three hours at a time, you know, especially for people who listen to things like the Critical Role podcasts, that's actually quite short. Um, But, you know, we're a herpetology podcast and we're also listening to our opinions of our listeners. And some of those listeners think we talk too long. So... We're actually going to talk the same amount, but we're going to divide it over multiple episodes. We're going to break it down like this. We're going to have some episodes where we only talk about uh, recent news. So basically uh, making the breaking newts an entire episode of its own. We're going to have discussion episodes where we talk about, we discuss things that are going on in our lives, as well as things that have that are interesting topics and we're going to dedicate entire episodes to discussing uh, women in herpetology and inclusiveness in herpetology in general. So we're going beyond just hashtag herpers to talk more along the lines of the hashtag herpetology, um, another thing that's, that's come up from the Twitter's And so we hope that you guys like our new format. I think it'll be much more accessible for the listeners and, um, Yeah, let us know what you think of the show as time goes on. And so, without further ado, we're going to actually make this episode a news episode. Because it was since uh, October last year that we recorded an episode. This is now being recorded on the 9th of February. And in the intervening five months, quite a lot of research has been published. And some of that research is really good. Oh, we we should mention... We should mention also, we also have another episode in the can that oh, yes. is in the process of, yeah, we'll be editing at some point. <laughs> very efficient and good The people. Lost Ark episode. <laughs> the, the Lost Archives. But fortunately, uh, that episode will actually be coming along, unlike a certain episode with a certain Dr. <laughs> James T. Stroud, which <laughs> we had to re-record altogether. Um and, you know, we're not the only ones who have lost episodes in the past. I hear even the great Ali Ward of the Ologies podcast has lost entire episodes from microphone failures. So, you know, we're trying to keep up with their uh, up with the best of yeah. them. Follow, follow the good examples left by other podcasts. Exactly. And so without further ado, you know what time it is. Breaking notes. That's not going away, guys. I'm very sorry. <laughs> I thought at least that there would be actual theme music this time, but well, no. yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, maybe if you guys uh, want to, you know, yeah, 
No. <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. Which one of the but episodes? It, which which one of our new episode formats is when we do the uh, critical role type episode? We have. That's a, a really good question. We should have an entire uh, a fourth <laughs> style of episode where we just have herpetology themed Dungeons and Dragons initiative. game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would totally be on board with that. Actually. <laughs> Suddenly, my schedule doesn't look nearly as full as I've been pretending it was. <laughs> yeah, right. right. <laughs> All right, guys. So we're going to talk about some great new research that's been published. And, um, you know, I went through all of this research um, looking both on Web of Science and of, uh, on, on Google Scholar, trying to, like, put together a long list of all the cool stuff. And then Gabriel took a look at it and was like, no, this is way too much stuff. So... <laughs> Uh, well, so, it was it was a lot of stuff. It was, it, was, stuff. it was honestly pages and pages. Uh, but it's so much good stuff, you guys. There's we, a lot of stuff. Have we to cannot talk about, talk about everything in the world. All right. So. All right. So we're going to talk about the stuff that we narrowed down the list to. There is a whole bunch of other, of course. In fact, over the last uh, uh, two months alone, there have been something on the order of uh, of 800 papers published. So, but not not two months, the last five months alone, 800 papers or so have been published in, in herpetology or have used words like chameleon in the title, even though they have absolutely nothing to do with herpetology because everyone thinks that what cuttlefish do in terms of changing their color is what chameleons can do in terms of changing their color. And it makes me so angry for all of these like computer science. Oh, look, it's a chameleon-like algorithm. And it's not at all. Anyway... <laughs> we're gonna go. We're gonna kick off the first. The first paper is by Yorick Post et al. Uh, published. Uh, well, I think it's basically still in press. Um, and oh no, it's it's been published in Cell, which is uh, the highest ranking of all journals into which herpetologists have ever posted, which is great. But of course, these are not herpetologists who have posted it. The title of the paper is Snake Venom Gland Organoids. So we're going to have to break this down. What's an organoid? Well, an organoid is a ball of cells. And basically, you can take balls of cells from mammals and you can get them to secrete things that these cells normally would do if they were in situ, in, in, um, in vivo inside the animal, but they're doing it in a Petri dish. And what these guys have done is that they've taken cells out of the venom glands of Cape coral snakes, and they have made little balls out of them, and those balls have continued to produce venom proteins, which is a really huge deal. This means that we have basically the capacity to, in a Petri dish, be generating... Um, venom proteins, and those proteins could then go toward um, making uh, uh, antivenins in the lab. So, I mean, this would really improve the um, husbandry of, I mean, so that we would have to keep fewer venomous snakes in order to get um, the amount of venom that we need, because currently all venomous, all antivenins are basically milked from snakes. Um and it can also really change the way we can start to scale this up to an industrial level and be looking at producing vast amounts of antivenins for countries where it's really needed, like Australia and India and, well, 
Australia is not so bad, but India really, really is hurting from things like Russell's vipers, uh, which are killing thousands of people. So this is really cool. That is cool. I, uh, I do wonder about, you know, the folks who have large collections of venomous snakes that are milked. What, uh, Oh, I don't think it's going to put them out of business anytime soon. Yeah. I mean, I I can understand that perspective. And of course, we have to think about the livelihood of those people. Um, But on the other hand, you know, if this is only ever going to be developed because it's probably very, very expensive, it's only ever going to be developed for things that really are causing a lot of problems. It's a bit strange that they've gone for a coral snake. Right. Which is not the most frequently envenoming snake. But the the problem is that coral snakes have no anti-venom. Like, they have no... There's no anti-venom available. So when Mm. you're... Or or there is, but it's very rarely produced. And uh, when you're bitten by a a coral snake, you're basically, you know, left to... Yeah, you're left to other methods that are symptomatic. They're not, you know... Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, if we can if we can get this going, especially for things like Russell's vipers, we can probably dramatically decrease the number of of deaths yeah. and um, morbidity from these um, snake bites. So, so we have so we know that this works with an elapid. I guess the mm-hmm. next test would be to to try that for something closer to a viper. If right, you know. right. But I think the principle. This is the first time this has been done in reptiles. Every this time is a, until this now, is a, it's always been done in mammals. This is a proof it's of a concept prin- here. Proof yeah. of concept. Yeah. And it develops the method for for doing it in other snakes. And now, I think this could really be a total game changer. And that is clearly why this was published in Cell, um, because this has the potential to save thousands and thousands of lives as a, as a really key step. So, you know. Um, I really wanted to highlight this as one of the first things that we talk about because one, it's one of the most recent things. And two, this is a real game changer. So that's really, really cool. All right, we'll move on. Let's talk about um, Simone Macri's paper, um, sorry, Simone Macri et al. 2019, Comparative Analysis of Squamate Brains Unveils Multi-Level Variation in Cerebellar architecture associated with locomotor specialization. This was published in Nature Communications, and I tweeted a little bit about this paper because it is stunning. So the authors have some of the greatest uh, micro-CT skills I have ever come across, and they put together some absolutely beautiful figures from this paper. That is, it's really, really worth checking it out. So this paper, they've looked at the size and the shape of brains over the evolution of uh, squamata. And they found some quite interesting stuff alongside their incredibly stunning renders. And um, perhaps the most interesting thing is that they found that locomotor mode, so basically whether you're a slithering animal or a climbing animal, walking animal, um, has a very strong effect on the shape of the cerebellum and indeed the shape of the entire brain across the squamates, which, um, you know, it's kind of difficult to do something with that because there's a lot we don't understand about the shape of the brain and its relative um, yeah, influence on these things. Gabriel, yeah, so doesn't, that, the, doesn't that immediately make you think paleo reconstruction? Like, 
What well, you- yeah, because it, it, it's basically, I mean, it's difficult to tell what why that's happening, but it means that modes of locomotion are definitely affecting the shape of the brain. Right, but the question is, how much of that is deterministic based on the shape of the skull? Because we know that things like becoming fossorial uh, or becoming limbless in skinks extends the head, makes it more shovel-shaped. Shovel so there's only so much you can actually do with the shape of your brain do, when do, your do all skull is changing in that way. Do all fossorial squamates, oh, I mean, sorry, do all limbless squamates uh, share the same type of brain? Because, I, you know, there are plenty of limbless snakes who are not definite, not fossorial, but arboreal, for example. Do they shape, do they, do, does the study found that they sh- share the same uh, morphology than a fossorial limbless squamate? Meaning an they arboreal seem... limbless squamate have the same sh- brain shape than a fossorial limbless squamate. It seems not. It seems that fossorialism is really doing something a little bit different to the brain. Okay. Which okay. is which is important, but on the other hand, uh, kind of difficult to say because all of these fossorial things, they're all sort of... So they're basically in their um, 3D principal component analysis, they have um, plotted um, spheroids essentially mm-hmm. for the um, limbless and the quadrupedal animals separately. Mm-hmm. And so it's quite difficult to compare directly between... But- those different groups, but in general, it seems like they're moving sort of in one direction. Yeah. The authors do, do seem to indicate that the locomotor mode is a strong predictor for the shape of the brain. So they do they do indicate in the in the abstract even they say these findings yeah, yeah. show that locomotor mode. So it it's not uh, it's locomotor mode more than uh, how they are using a particular niche, meaning it's it's limbless taxa versus um, uh, walking taxa have a different brains. Yes, but the thing is, every time you become limbless, your skull automatically changes. Yeah, but because not all things limbless, are becoming more streamlined. But, yeah, not, but all not all limbless. limbless yeah, it's exactly. Not all, not all limbless uh, taxa are fossorial by any means. No, no, They're, I'm not. Yeah, but they still have but, shortened. They still have elongated heads. All of them, <laughs> except the ones that actually lose it post hoc. Like Xenotyphops has a blunt head, but actually so, its but, head is still extended. Yeah, but fossorial taxa, you mean? No, all, all limbless taxa have longer heads than no. all, all non-limbless no. taxa. No, think of Imantotis, Dipsis. And Varanids are a very good example of how not to. Yeah, I think... But still, in general, I think that the transition to being limbless is associated with... <laughs> Gabriel's giving me a thumbs down. I think that the transition <laughs> to becoming limbless is associated, in general, with an elongation of the snout. Originally. Meaning... In that every it, case. No, but okay, wait. Let me finish. I, I think that when I, let's, if the origin of being limbless is to become fossorial, then originally all taxa... Uh, basically or, or uh, ancestrally had an elongated head even if they went for a blunt yeah. or short head afterwards but yes okay so that's different that's different to what i that's that's not what i was saying what i was saying is that what this study shows even that if it, it means that even 
arboreal limbless taxa with a short head have the same type of brain of a limbless long-headed fossorial squamy. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, because they're all ancestrally limbless, short, long-headed. Okay, that's what I was. That's yes. what I was asking. Okay. Yes, yes. No, I mean that's that I agree with. Yes. Okay. Okay. It's just the fact that they've, you know, they all have this canalization, and it's really hard to disentangle these things. So, for a paleontological point of view, we can say that if we're going to reconstruct a primitive fossorial squamate that was limbless, or or in the way of becoming limbless, it has to be long-headed. It probably had a long head. Mm-hmm. And that's the, and then the question is, is the brain shape entirely brought about by that elongation of the snout? Or is there something more? Is mm-hmm. it associated with a more um, uh, advanced uh, evolution or development of the uh, vomeronasal organ, mm-hmm. you know, the Jacobson's yeah. organ, which is also typically more developed in these fossorial taxa that are relying more on scent in order to to locate their prey so like disentangling those things i am not sure that these authors have done you know completely but it is a a a really interesting um observation already and it's taking us toward a much better understanding of what's actually well, uh, what's actually changing in terms of the skull shape and um, and brain shape in these animals. And just like you said, um, you know, just like you said, just for the uh, pick for the figures, this paper is amazing. Just by for the, for the figures, you should just look at it just yeah. for the figures. Yeah, it, it's um, it's a real stunner. Yeah, so definitely worth Maybe. checking out. Yeah. I just wanted to mention briefly another paper. Uh, this was published by Andre Chernashki uh, et al. 2020, just a few weeks ago, um, that provides the first complete articulated early Miocene chameleon skull. Um, and they say in the paper, or the rest of the title says, uh, it suggests an African origin for, Madag- or, or for Madagascar's endemic chameleons. Mark is already going uh, uh, road. This is not paper, one of the ones that we're going to talk about. It's, it's <laughs> worth mentioning because this is the first real fossil chameleon that is not from within the last 10 million years. So pretty much every fossil chameleon until now has been found in Europe, actually in Germany, not so far from me. Um, several fossil like chameleon pieces of chameleon skulls have been found. And then further down in Africa, there have been these really tiny fragments. They've been terrible. This is a really beautiful skull. It's um, it's just worth mentioning because it's a big deal. Not entirely sure I agree with the conclusions of the author in terms of the assignment. It's very, very difficult based on the material that we have and the comparative stuff that we've got. But it's worth mentioning because it's very cool. They named it Columa Ben- Benofsky or something like that um, after a relatively questionable yeah Benofsky after uh-huh. a relatively questionable uh, character in history but we won't go into that now Columa's an extant genus right? Columa is an extant genus and that's, that's, that's part uh, of the reason yeah. that their assignment is a bit weird yeah 
So this specimen is around 20 million years old, and it's being found in the middle of... Uh, that's, that's the same genus as like in, veiled chameleons and... Right? Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. Yeah. No, no, not veiled chameleons. Veiled chameleons are chameleon. Yeah. Oh, but um, yeah. it's the same no. genus as as Columma nazudum. That, that or, is an exogenous. Par- Parsons yeah. chameleons are, right. are also Columma. This is being found in the middle of Kenya, so it's very, yeah. very, very weird that it's so young and also in the middle of Kenya. Like that doesn't add up to me. And that's one of the reasons I'm so skeptical about it. We don't have that many chameleon skulls to compare it with, so quite difficult to do uh, anything with that. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we'll move on again. This time, another impress paper by Frank T. Burbrink et al., um, entitled Interrogating Genomic Scale Data for Squamata. Lizards, snakes, and amphibians shows no support for key traditional morphological relationships. How surprised are we? None, because that's been, <laughs> we've been finding that for a long time already. But. Yeah, yeah. So this paper is, um, is as I say, in press in uh, Systematic Biology, which is a great journal. Um, but it's really interesting slash important because they have a very large number of samples. So they've got um, basically genomic scale sampling from 289 individuals covering 75 families of squamates. Not to say that we haven't had a large, large sample for a long time. I mean, if we go back to the Pyron papers... uh, Right. So the problem with Pyron is that it's a super matrix approach based on very, very little overlap between the different groups. Mm-hmm. What this is, is tens of thousands of loci that we have overlapped across all of these different groups. But it recovered so, basically the same, the same topology. So. This is the hilarious thing, right? So they've now put thousands and thousands of, of euros or dollars into this paper and essentially recovered the same, same relationships th- Yeah, it's exactly the before. same thing. This- <laughs> Yeah. I mean, but the thing is that these these recalcitrant problems, these problems that turn up when you're doing low low quality um, uh, sequencing, they tend to persist for a very long time, even when you're throwing more and more and more data at that. Like we've seen that really clearly with the microhylid phylogeny. Doesn't matter how much data you throw at the problem, we're still getting these issues, and part of that is the the level of extinction that has sort of obscured a lot of the patterns that we have going on. But there's also this thing about basically if these branches all diverge from one another relatively close together, it requires a huge amount of data or it requires very, very careful analysis of the existing data in order to sort of figure out what the order of those branching events might have been. And some of them are going to stay as polytomies basically forever. So in this case, they still have not been able to figure out what's going on with dibamids and gecotins um, and the relationships between iguania, serpentes, and anguiforms. So these things are all still sort of blurry. Even if you start throwing in fossils, those things are really not clearing that's, up. That's the thing. Um, fossils can only give us, you know, morphological information. If we had all yeah. those all those animals as extant representatives of those groups, this is pro- this probably will be solved. But we're missing a lot of groups exactly. from that. We're missing time, from a that, huge amount. Yeah. 
And I, I wanted to mention also very, very briefly this paper that we're specifically not going to be talking about. But there was also a paper by Fernando F. Garbaroglio et al. 2019, where they described new skulls of Najash. And even if you were to... So Najash are these legged snakes. But they showed in that paper that there's a larger radiation of those legged snakes. And so using those things to help us to calibrate the actual branching point of snakes from whatever their closest living relatives are is really challenging because the more fossils we find, the more we realize, oh, there might actually be a lot of diversity that's going on inside these um, or missing branches, you know, and that's also causing problems in terms of actually setting our calibration points and setting our our relationships among these different groups. Yeah, although I must say that uh, the, 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 the squamate tree is Pretty well resolved. I mean, minus some areas that are annoying. Uh, well, that's the problem. So at the at the tip level, the resolution is quite good. Yeah. At these deep nodes, which turn out to be extremely important for dating the rest of the tree and and understanding major events in terms of squamate evolution, like the evolution of our very specific snake body plan. Um, it would be useful if we could figure out what their next closest ancestors yeah. or, or, or relatives are, and we simply can't. I believe, Even throwing the, I believe the so technical term is leggy boys. And, <laughs> True, Leg, uh, leggy boys. I do apologize. I do apologize. <laughs> Interestingly, this paper gave an origin for squamate uh, from the early Jurassic, uh, which means that by the time we get the first Gekotens on the Solnhofen formation in Germany, um, mm-hmm. they were pretty early representatives. I mean, uh, if this origin uh, date is correct, because that Solnhofen is from the late Jurassic, so they haven't, they haven't, they hadn't been squamates going around for a, that long of a time. Well, I mean, that's absolutely true. This, the thing is, it sort of depends on what you think about these very, very early fossils. And what yeah. their significance is, right? Because yeah. those early divergences, like we know that geckos are extremely old because the the fossils that we're finding in amber are also extremely old. Well, but, but also, we also but, have but gecko- also recognizably geckos. Yeah, uh, and, and also they're so unbelievably recognizably right. recognizably yeah. geckos. But, it's but also absolutely mind blowing. Geckotons from uh, from Solnhofen are. Very much geckotens. I mean, they, they. I know. I mean, it's 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 it's. I know there have been some discrepancies to see if they're actually geckotens, but they pretty much look very much geckotens. So interesting. So, I did. I had no idea that there were geckotens there, and I've been to Solenhofen. Yeah, they're it's, too. It's really not far too from genera, me. Too general. They're not always classified as geckoten, but if they are not, they're very close to them. Okay. Well, that's really interesting. So that implies that geckos are are. We're an early offshoot. Oh yeah, but yeah. but diver- are clearly but one of the earliest. really quickly. Then yeah, uh, yeah. Well, that's another problem, right? So internally within the geckos, figuring out the relationships between the different families of geckos has been a huge problem. Yeah. So we still are not really sure what the different relationships are between the carpodactylids and the diplodactylids and the geconids. Does that? Um, I mean, like I'm thinking, you know, like uh, always. I thought eublepharids were uh, primitive because they have eyelids and they lack toe pads. But is it is that implying things like like that could be actually secondarily 
Well, there uh, is the possibility that it secondarily re-evolved, but in fact, in their phylogeny, they're at least indicating that eublepharids are one of the, or, or are the first branch to leave from stem Gakota. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's there's so much interesting stuff going on in this paper. Um, it's also really interesting to see the kind of mess that's being caused by um, by the early snake radiation because it was such an, a rapid and um, and broad diversification into these major groups that went on to be formed. And we still have this problem of, like, what about the, the typhlopoids? You know, what on earth is going on in it's all in, these different groups? That's one of the things that I find in this paper that I don't clearly remain, remember, is that they do find that a typhlopoids form a, a, a clade with annelids that they call amerophidia. And I don't remember, I don't remember if we have recovered that in, an, in other, uh, if that is a new clade discovering this um, uh, paper and this, and this analysis. Um, but I found it interesting when I was looking at the, at the, oh, this, at the tree. They, no, no, they, the, the other members that are in Amorophidia is the Tropidophidae. 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 No. So no, the animal no. leopards are, no, uh, are Tropido- a branch out. Oh, Tropidophidae. Yeah. I thought it was typhoid. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. It's, yeah. Which typhoid. is even, which is even, I don't remember that clade, Amorophidia. I have also not heard of this clade before. Might be a new a nuclear found in this study. Yeah, I'm not sure, but um, I can check quickly. Yeah, typhlopoids are um, are typhlopoids with the uh, gorophids, and that's it. And then, of course, one of the things that we knew again and wasn't recovering this uh, paper either is that um, scolicophidia is not recover as a monophyletic group exactly you find, unsurprising yeah see I our mean, previous episode where we talked about xenotyphlops it's it's pretty consistent what we what we is there any major discrepancy in this paper mark with what we've known from other trees before this one no not really um, it's just that we found the same annoying parts that we cannot refool the result but yeah, exactly. <laughs> Toxicopher um, no, has recovered once again. I mean, we've been knowing this for a decade. A hundred percent. I mean, yeah. there's no doubt now that Toxicopher is, is completely supported. And, and I don't really think that it's something that's worth putting too much emphasis on because yeah. everyone is finding yeah. Toxicopher as being fully supported. Yeah. At this point, um, it's pretty obvious. So Mosasaurs would, feel, would fit somewhere in that group. That mosasaurs and those other um, long, like like tetrapodophis and that group that have really long, four-limbed, long yeah. snake-like uh, uh, squamates would fit somewhere in this area. But was we don't one know of exactly the, where. Yeah. One of the ideas well, was that mosasaurs were uh, an offshoot of varanids. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Well, there was a point in which they said that they were angimorphs, but I don't think that there's any there's been any i mean there are studies that say that first of all mosasaurs are not even a, a monophyletic group anymore they, they, they know that they're <laughs> so so it's it's so who, uh, so who knows okay exactly yeah uh, I, th- we know that they are somewhere there they have been said also to be the sister group to snakes so they are somewhere in toxicophora within this 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 the, between iguanians angimorphs and serpentis but uh, but it's difficult to tell exactly where in there they fit because well, that's the thing. Sorry, that, that is also a polytomy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And they've also, uh, and if you look at this tree, you can see the anguiforms have a super long branch leading up to them. The serpentes have a super long branch leading up to them. I can imagine that that branch would be made shorter if you had a mosasaur that was swimming around. Yeah. yeah, yeah and yeah. it would sit somewhere in between them. It would help us to understand if, they, if these two groups are actually grouped together or... Um, if it may be mosasaurus, maybe do fall closer to angliforms, or yeah, you know, it's really hard to say. Now we have to find a mosquito that bit a mosasaur <laughs> at some point and got preserved in amber, and somehow we have the and somehow preserved the DNA for um, millions of years, etc. So yeah. Exactly, exactly. Uh, we can we can only hope <laughs> life uh, finds a way. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and then we'll find out that they're actually fossorial. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that would be hilarious. Yes, using, using <laughs> flippers to move underground uh, yes. when you are when you are ten meters long. It's like a graboid, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. All right, um, all right. We'll move on to the next paper. This is by Eva uh, Fisher et al. Twenty nineteen. Um, the paper is called Me- "Mechanisms of Convergent Egg Provisioning in Poison Frogs." It's published in Current Biology. This is another absolutely beautiful paper. Really interesting results. Uh, so definitely worth checking out, although I'm not entirely sure if it's open access or not. Um, but they have a really beautiful uh, graphical abstract at the very least. And you may remember in the last episode, we talked about more research from Afa Fisher and um, the team of, of Afa and Lauren O'Connell, who are both doing such great work on um, on poison frogs. Well, this study is looking at the convergence between Madagascar's poison frogs and South America's poison frogs. So they're using Uofega and Mantella as the two different comparison groups. And I just want to embark quickly on the story of how incredibly ridiculous this convergent evolution is. I don't know if I've talked about it in a previous episode. Have I talked about this before, you guys? I don't think uh, so. We, we may have mentioned like some of this, you know, in talking about Mantella yeah, but, and stuff, but... Yeah. Not, so I, I, think, I think the people who, who look at Madagascar as poison frogs, you see them and you're like, oh, that looks a lot like a, man, uh, like a dendrobatid. And in fact, the, the resemblance between these two different groups is so extreme that when they were first described, of course... Madagascar's dendro, uh, Madagascar's mantella were described in the genus Man- uh, Dendrobates, so they're they're fundamentally not just similar like at a, at a superficial level, but morphologically, anatomically, they look really really similar. They behave really similarly, and it turns out they're even sim- secreting very very similar uh, peptides, so very similar alkaloids um, that are causing their them to be so poisonous. And, of course, they don't really secrete these peptides or these, these alkaloids. These are sequestered poisons, right? They're yeah. sequestered. Yeah. Right. So the fact that they have evolved convergently to be um, aposomatically colored, so they're very brightly colored, they're toxic, and the fact that they're sequestering these things in their skin has evolved completely independently and convergently between these South American dendrobatid frogs and the Malagasy mantellid frogs in one group of the mantellid frogs. Central and South um, American. It, well, Central and South American, yes. And the divergence between these two frog groups is 140 million years, and there's like all kinds of other different frogs in between them. But what's even crazier 
is where are they sequestering these things from? Well, they're sequestering them from ants and termites. Mm -hmm. And the ants and termites are also not sister to one another between ah. at, between Madagascar and, and Central and South America, but have, in fact, also convergently evolved to be producing the same toxins from huh. the plants that they're eating. So it's a double convergence uh, to an incredibly um, a, a incredible extreme. So what's interesting to find here is what converged first. Was it the ants that converged first, or was it the frogs that converged first? I, I, I imagine guess, it must I guess have been the ants. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, the, the ants, ants and termites, they, they probably must have converged because the frogs need to already be sequestering these toxins in order to evolve this particular yeah. ecomorph. It's just so funny that they both, they didn't just evolve a posemitism, which is possible in many different ways, but they evolved to even hop and walk the same way. So they're all tiny hoppy frogs. They're not like long leapers or tree frogs or whatever. They're just very, very similar in terms of their habitus to one another, I wonder which is if that, totally remarkable. I wonder if that has to deal with the fact that they are, that probably long distance jumping is, 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 it takes a lot more resources from you. So if you can avoid jumping long because you're a, an aposematic frog that, you know, you're poisonous, and well, well, you don't need to jump very much. That's what I'm if saying. You're, if you're super poisonous, exactly right. I mean, uh, I had uh, Phyllobates uh, and they just sit out in the open. They, yeah, they, yeah, they're <laughs> totally unabashed. They don't care. They're you yeah. know. And, and even are the same, you know? yeah. And even even and and that must be like a like an ancestral condition because even species that are um, uh, uh, like like species that are not in colostetines, for example, within the Drobatids, colostetines like like um, uh, colostetus amiraga and all that that are not some of them are not as poisonous or then the, right. they don't right. usually sequester poison. They're still diurnal. And even those that are not aposematic, like some colostetus, they're still there. Yeah. So uh -huh. that's uh -huh. interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a lot of stuff that's going on in this, in this convergence and it's totally crazy how to, to the extreme that it is. And what's, what's really interesting about this particular paper is that they're studying it, not only at the level of the actual toxins that they're um, sequestering, but also at this level of egg provisioning. So, These frogs, zoophaga, are named for the fact that they that the um, tadpoles eat the eggs that are provided by the mothers or the yeah the mothers, and it, interestingly in Madagascar we have Mantella levigata, which is also a dart frog like thing, that um, likewise provisions its tadpoles with eggs that it lays into these bamboo nodes. They use bamboo nodes, and the Central American frogs use bromeliads. Exactly. So Madagascar doesn't have any bromeliads. And so what they could use would be pandanus screw palms. But I think possibly that the pandanus were already being occupied by all kinds of crabs and, uh, and, and other frogs, uh, especially the microhylid frogs that live in these, in these pandanus, that it was, uh, that niche was pretty much already occupied. And so they went for, for these bamboo nodes that are pretty much everywhere. And it's very convenient because you have eye, which are behaving like woodpeckers, making big holes in the side of your uh, bamboo holes, uh, bamboo things. And you can actually go and, and lay eggs in there. And it's a good place for storing water and stuff. So all kinds of frogs are actually taking advantage of that. 
Um, and so, right, so what did they do in this paper? Well, they're comparing the consequences of the provisioning by the Mantella and the Uofega. So they show that not only are they giving the eggs to these offspring and helping them to grow, but hmm. those eggs are being provisioned with toxins. So already the frog, the, the froglets that are developing in these phytotelms are are becoming toxic because they're receiving those uh, toxins yeah. from their so parents, they, which they is get, amazing. Yeah, before so, they ever get the chance to eat an ant, exactly, they're already poisonous. Right. Huh. Isn't that cool? Yeah, yeah that's so, super cool. And uh, and then they, they took it a little bit like the paper we discussed in the last episode. They also looked at the brains that are the, the regions of the brain that are involved, the chemicals that are involved here. And it's really funny in the paper, they call this behavior nursing, mm-hmm. which is such a weird thing to think of from a, from a mammalian perspective. Um, but they look at the role, especially of oxytocin in the provisioning because in mammals of course oxytocin is very very significant in terms of the provisioning the the reaction or the chemistry of the mother um, while she's nursing with the with the child but what's interesting here is that the mantella have an upregulation in terms of oxytocin whereas the uofega have repressed oxytocin during the nursing behavior so mm-hmm. there's actually different things happening in their brains uh, while they are nursing their offspring, um, so which are, means man, that this Mantellas is a are, little bit more complicated. Mantellas are loving their kids, but Ufega are just doing something else. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're not enjoying they're, they're it at all. They're rejoicing at the parents. murder of the eggs as they're being fed to the... You know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and this this kind of stuff is really hard to do, but it's it's such an interesting perspective because... You know, we understand a lot about provisioning in birds and in mammals and um, and even in some invertebrates, we have a relatively good understanding of, of uh, offspring provisioning. But amphibians, there are so many amphibians that are engaging in parental care. And yes. we're actually going to come back to that in, um, in, in a few minutes when we talk about a different paper. Um, there's so much going on with with parental care in amphibians, but we don't really understand the chemistry that's involved. We don't really understand what the offspring are often getting out of it. So this, yeah. I mean, it's there's, no surprise that this was published in, in Current Biology, which is a great journal well, how, uh, I, because I, it really is the first perspective. I immediately, I'm thinking of um, the paper that was a, a while ago about uh, ambistoma, spotted salamanders, ambistoma maculatum, when they found that they had that symbiotic relationship with algae mm-hmm. in their eggs yeah. and then their embryos. Yeah. It's uh, so We have no idea what's going on. We only recently noticed that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's been a lot of research into that question and, uh, and, and other species found that also have it, it seems. So yeah, um, it's really, really cool. All right. Now we're going to move on to a section about genomics because there have been, three new herp genomes published since the last episode the biggest and most impressive of them is of course the komodo dragon genome dun, da, 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 is published by abigail l lind et al in uh, nature ecology and evolution and the paper you know every genome paper they use some kind of crutch for how they justify uh, publishing the genome of this animal. And this one, they basically looked at the cardiovascular system, the respiratory system of these, uh, of these varanids, and um, 
They were also interested, I guess, in understanding how the Varanids are avoiding the effects of their own, uh, how the Komodo dragon is avoiding the effect of its own anticoagulant saliva. And they looked at certain gene families that are involved in that and whatever. But most importantly, we now have a Komodo dragon genome, which is just pretty cool. All right, next one, the Indian cobra genome. This was published by Kushal Suryamohan et al. in Nature Genetics. And, uh, well, they claim in the paper or say in the paper that uh, it, it is in, uh, providing really important insight into venom genes and things that have evolved um, or, or, yeah, families of genes involved in venom production within these snakes. And most importantly, this is a really high quality genome assembly, or at least that's what they say. So that's a big step also for uh, anti-venom production in, in, um, in India going to make some venomoids or some what was it <laughs> not venomoids venomoids is definitely what, a not what i was going for. no the one we were talking person about first things anti-venoms yeah oh um uh, organoids. Uh, organoids 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 yeah <laughs> <laughs> not venomoids I'll, I'll cut out the venomoids thing <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's that's bullshit people shouldn't be doing that yeah definitely not um yeah, this is really cool. It's also the first, I think, true cobra genome. So we had the, the king cobra, but it, king cobra is not a real cobra. Naja Naja is. So that's an important step. I, I, and yeah. then... You can get sorry, any, more, any more cobra than that. Naja Naja. That's like the cobra. It's the Naja Naja cobra. is like yeah. the cobra cobra cobra. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> naja Naja it's Naja. Like yeah. Gorilla Gorilla. Yeah. Um, iguana Iguana. Buffalo Buffalo. Uh, <laughs> bombus bombus i always um, like i think boa constrictor is actually my favorite because people are like what that's a scientific name yeah, yeah they don't know how smart they already are <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> all right the third one is the leishan moustache mustached <laughs> toad um leptobrachium leishanense uh, published by john lee et al in nature communications this was a really surprising uh, a genome for me. I did not expect to see this. I mean, first of all, when I opened the paper, I didn't expect that it would have a genome in it. And I was reading the abstract and they were like, oh, yeah, we produce a genome with this frog. <laughs> so, hey, look, we have a new toad genome. Uh, I think it's 3.5 gigabases, which is a pretty uh, around expected size for a toad genome, I'd say. And, but they used the paper actually to look at the genes involved in nuptial pad formation in these toads. So they have spines on the inside of the thumb in males, which, which is a, really interesting. And it's a common occurrence in many types of frogs. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And we really don't understand why or how it's being used or what it's being used for. So having a lot more insight uh, into the genetics that's that lie underlying the trait is really useful. Well, we know what the nuptial so. pads are for. I mean, that's for grabbing on during amplexus, right? Well, I mean, we think so, but there's also the possibility that they're secreting things. They or also fight with them know. sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Males fight with so. them. But uh, I mean, we, we can, can we just say that amphibians just like to grow stuff? Because it's like they just are so flexible. Like that they, is so true. They change their bodies in all oh, shapes yeah. and forms. So. I mean, I, I've got... I've got all sorts of Triturus newts downstairs that are all cresting up right now. That are oh, it's so amazing. I, I saw one last year that had the full crest for the very first time. And I was like, this is a crested newt. This has got to be a crested newt. And the people I was herping with, they were like, no, no, this is an alpine newt. They just get yeah. like that when they're yeah. horny. Yeah. I was like, what? 
I had yeah. no idea that they do that. Yeah, so. alpine newts get that way. There's uh, a, a lot of the European newts do that. None of those crests are supported by neural spines, right? Those are all... Correct. Those are yep, all... Yeah, they completely disappear in the off-season. Yeah, but that, so there's no neural... Because that's why I didn't yep. include... When I did my sail back... Uh, oh yeah, yeah. tetrapod thing. I for yeah, a minute I doubted for incl about including no, the tetrapod. No bone, but there's no bone. In yeah, that. there's no real any neural spining growing processes growing from the neural spine. So. No, no. All right, and then we have two last papers before we wrap up this episode. Um, these are big data papers, so I wanted to make sure whenever um, these genomes come out and whenever the big paper, big data papers come out, I think those are really, really significant because they tend to see, first of all, a lot of citation. And secondly, they tend to be a foundation for a lot of papers, uh, publications that are coming out in the future. So I'm always going to try and highlight big data papers whenever they come out, even if I do so only very, very briefly. So um, the first of these two papers is by uh, Andrew, Andrew I. Furness and Isabella Capellini, uh, published 2019, so in, in December, I think, in Nature Communications. And um, the paper is called The Evolution of Parental Care Diversity in Amphibians. And it's really interesting. So we know quite a lot about um, uh, parental care in certain groups of amphibians, but this brings together pretty much all of the published data. I mean, they must have spent hours and hours and hours assembling this database. I was thinking and about that because it's so diverse. It's so diverse. It's, it's covering all of the amphibians. So it's also getting everything we know about Sicilians, everything we know about all the salamanders. Um, and especially all the different frog groups. I mean, just imagine there are, yes. uh, are 6,000 frogs alone. Um, and they really have done an incredible job pulling together all of this data. And not just, of course, assembling this database, but also analyzing it on the latest phylogenies and, um, and showing really interesting relationships between um, the different phases of parental care, how much um, investment is being given, and... You know, it's um, it's really starting to let us contextualize things that we know, like, for example, that paper by Ifa Fisher and colleagues. Um, it, it's something where we can look at this now from a more global perspective, from everything we know about the amphibians so and, and help us to understand this. What, 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 what was their core uh, conclusion from the paper? I mean, I'm interested because I haven't read the paper and I'm interested in knowing, do they find any... Do they find um, because even I mean, wh what I want to say is that do they find any any ancestral uh, uh, parental care or uh, type of parental care that could have been more ancestral than uh, well, there are obviously some that are pretty much derived, but I mean, like, uh, do they found anything within this yeah. amphibian set? Yeah. So basically, the the list amphibian prototype would probably have have either not had parental care or have had very limited parental care probably mm -hmm. limited entirely to the early stage of the of of offspring provisioning mm -hmm. like basically nest guarding while the, the eggs are not yet hatched and this is considering um Sicilians as closely related to salamanders and frogs right 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 yeah which might not I be mean, the case which is probably not likely the case but okay 
Well, yeah, I don't know. I, no, I mean, the recent analysis found that, uh, I mean, even molecular clock indicates that they diverge somehow very much early in the, before the Triassics. So uh, even if they're related, which might not be the case according to some recent analysis, they are um, very, they have gone very, for a long time, they have a long evolutionary separate right right they, they do have a very long evolutionarily separate history but i think yeah we don't know the actual relationships between sicilians and the others but at least based on the phylogeny that they have used which is the best that's possible based on current molecular data uh they imply at least based on their trees that the ancestral state was probably not very parental carry even though there is parental care essentially in all Sicilians. Yeah. Um, still, it's very hard to make sort of inferences over that incredibly long life period. And yeah. yeah, yeah, it's really, really, really tough. But what the main takeaway message is basically that it's relatively easy to evolve simple parental care, early stage parental care. Late stage parental care is lost and gained at a much lower rate and um viviparity especially is very rarely lost or has rarely been lost it seems in amphibians in amphibians okay uh, yes uh yes. you said vivipar- so live birth is live birth there's not they many- say in the abstract brooding and viviparity are lost at very low rates if at all but it's also not evolved very often. Well, it has evolved relatively seldom, but it's evolved in Sicilians, in salamanders multiple times, and in frogs multiple times. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So it has evolved a few times. Yeah. It's very difficult to infer that it's been lost at all, but, you know. Right, right, right. Yeah, and that's what I mean. It's it's evolved very rarely, but it seems to have been lost even less rarely, once although you have, that might just be an artifact. Once you have it, you're not likely to let go of it. Right, exactly. And then they also say, really interestingly, biparental care seems to be unstable as an evolutionary strategy, mm-hmm. which is kind of interesting because uh, it's true that there are relatively few amphibians that have biparental care. The last frogs right? are a huge example of that. Yes, exactly. And uh, there are a few other frogs that seem to engage in biparental care. Although, you know, I think the thing in frogs is that male promiscuity is extremely, extremely high. So you don't have that many that are really true, like, monogamous couples. Um, Male frogs are sluts. Yeah. All right. And uh, the final paper that I'd like to talk about in this episode, we've just crossed one hour of recording, you guys. So this is going to be the shortest episode of all time. But that's the whole point of our new structure. Exactly. Uh, the, the final paper that we're going to mention is um, uh, Riddy D. Perkins et al. 2019 as well. A database of amphibian karyotypes. This was published in Chromosome Research. It's a big data paper. They basically assembled... Uh, a set of um, or a database on chromosomes that you can go to karyotype.org and look at 
And that can be very useful for species identification, for understanding how big the genomes are and what they're divided into. And as they say, it can be useful for taxonomic purposes, but it can also be useful as a first stage to understanding what we actually need to do when we're assembling the genomes of our frogs and our, um, and our and, uh, other amphibians. So very useful thing to do. And with that, I think we can wrap up. So... Thank you for listening to the Squamates podcast. We are very, very glad to be back. It's been a long time. And uh, Gabriel, where can one find you on the internet? I am at Serpent Illus on Twitter and on Instagram and on Facebook. And you can find me also on my website, GabrielLogetto.com. And Ethan, where can one find you? Uh, I am at Black Mud Puppy on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And I also have a website... Uh, called <laughs> nudist.com n-e-w-t-i-s-t dot com oh I know I'm well aware yes and you can find me at Mark Schertz, M-A-R-K-S-C-H-E-R-Z, all over the internet, except on Facebook, where I'm at MD Shirts because I scooped my own name. You can follow the podcast. You can get our show notes uh, at squamatespod.com. You can send us an email at squamatespod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter, on Facebook, and on Instagram by going to at squamatespod or squamatespod on Facebook. And... As we like to say on the show, Hakuna Swamata!